Welcome to another edition of Career Education Report. I'm Jason Altmeyer, and today we have Trace Erden as our guest. He's Managing Director at Titan Partners, and he spent much of his career in equity research, analyzing and covering the knowledge sector prior as a Managing Director at Credit Suisse. And during his career, Trace has followed a wide range of companies serving the education market. He's covered childhood, K-12, higher education and employment training, and he's widely cited as an expert on topics of for-profit education, education technology, and education policy. And in fact, he's been cited by Career College Central Magazine as one of the 25 most influential people in the career college sector. And he's testified before the Spellings Commission, and uh, his writings and uh, thought leadership is ubiquitous. You see it everywhere. I'm sure a lot of people have encountered him before and read his thinking and his writings. Trace, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure, Jason. It's good to be here. Tell us just to start a little bit about Titan Partners. What kind of work do you do? Sure. Um, We're focused exclusively in the education market. So all those same areas that you mentioned I covered as an analyst are the same footprint that we have as an advisory firm. And we have two practices. One is a strategy consulting practice that looks like a Bain or a BCG or a Parthenon group, where we help companies and institutions primarily with growth strategy. We also do all of our commercial diligence work out of that group. So if if, uh, somebody's looking to buy a company or an operation in the education market and they need some help understanding where that business fits into the overall landscape, our consulting practice will support that work. Um, And then we have an M&A advisory practice, and that's where I spend most of my time. Probably about 85% of the work that we do is what's called sell side, where we help owners of companies sell their businesses. But we also get involved with buy side work, where we help companies that are looking to acquire businesses in the sector, ferret out those uh, companies that fit their strategies. And then we do some miscellaneous uh, advisory work and capital raising and so forth as well. And I would say you have your ear to the ground, maybe more than anyone else related to these issues and, and higher education policy generally. It's one of the reasons you're so widely cited on these issues. Just to start, can you it's such a momentous time with, with uh, significant regulations pending, congressional action on the horizon, and just changes through technology and other things in the marketplace of higher education. What What is your overall view of where things are headed with higher education generally? You're exactly right. I think all of those issues are incredibly relevant. They were relevant when I was covering public companies for public market investors, and they're every bit as relevant now when I'm helping private equity investors and and strategic investors uh, buy in and around the space and understand what's happening. It's funny, I think across the education market generally, there's always been this antipathy that folks have had to people making money in the sector, and it shows itself in a variety of ways. I mean, back in the day, if anybody remembers Edison School's, Chris Whittle's project of having a a large publicly traded charter school company um, faced tremendous amount of pressure because of what he was trying to do there. And of course, we see it in the for-profit, in the career college sector, where there's just a general feeling that if there if there are individuals or if there are companies making money in this space, that that must somehow be wrong. And so there's a very concerted effort to use the administrative state, use the regulatory apparatus to sort of press on enterprises in, that operate in the sector 
And unfortunately, you know, in, in the time I've spent covering the sector, I've, I've gone from this being something that was fairly innocuous and, and there was really great bipartisan support to where we are today, where I think the Democratic Party led by progressives are very intent on increasing the role of regulation in the career college sector and in really in, more broadly than that in every kind of service business that's supporting higher education. Unfortunately, it just seems to be now kind of part of the DNA of that group. And so we're, you know, we're, we are in this mode where d- depending on who's in charge of the Department of Education, you know, there's very, you know, widely differing policies in this realm. And it, it makes it difficult for investors who, above all else, I mean, they obviously love growth, but what they love more than anything else is is predictability. And when you have this sort of very volatile regulatory agenda, it, it makes investment in the sector, you know, challenging. One of the criticisms that you hear from those folks that you were referencing, critics of the sector, is that the role of private equity by itself leads to bad outcomes and decision-making not based upon student outcomes, but other factors. And I know you've had to answer that question a thousand times. What are the answers to that concern? Do you think there's validity to the concern? No, I, I really don't. I'm not sure that my arguments are ever that persuasive against the people that also see private equity as somehow nefarious. But the the point I always try to make is that private equity investors are really interested in preserving and enhancing the value of whatever it is that they're owning. And if it's a school, what they want is for the value, the long-term value of that asset to appreciate. So this idea that critics have that somehow they're, they're interested in um, driving short-term gains and at short-term cash flow really misunderstands how particularly private equity investing works, right? They're looking to build a, a business that has real value to customers and has real value to all of its constituent parties because that's how they're going to get the best return on their investment long-term. So, you know, in the past when private equity shops have owned schools that have gotten into trouble, I think it's really been more a function of them not understanding what was really happening at those schools more than it was some kind of a cabal to defraud students or defraud the government in some way. And so by my way of thinking, you know, having professional class of investors invested in in schools is actually a way of enhancing the quality of those operations. This is what private equity firms are really good at. They're really good at building and enhancing infrastructure so that institutions can can grow and be more stable and better operating going forward. But that's not how they're generally viewed in the popular imagination. It's a tough case I have. Would you say that there is a difference in the thought process in managers and leaders of for-profit institutions versus private, nonprofit, and public institutions? And I, I ask that question because I've served on the board of trustees at two different nonprofit institutions, private, nonprofit colleges. And I can tell you from experience when the finance committee meets and they're talking about what needs to be done and decisions to be made, the bottom line is the primary factor uh, in those discussions. And, and I always think twice when the critics say that, well, that, that's the problem with the for-profit sector. 
what is your experience related to you know public institutions and private nonprofit institutions and how they look at their financial operations? Titan works with both types of institutions. So we do quite a bit of work with nonprofit institutions. We, we help them find merger partners on the, on the M&A side, and we, we help them with strategy and understanding markets. And I, I certainly agree with you that the decision makers in the administration um, are you know, very focused on the sort of long-term viability of the operation, which just means that financial sustainability it's not to say that there aren't other forces and, and that, you know, you, you have at nonprofit institutions, you, ha- you do have a consensus-based decision-making apparatus that sometimes can complicate that element. I, I do find that it's sometimes hard for nonprofit institutions to make decisions. And I think one of the challenges that's facing that aspect of the higher education market right now, I mean, it's it's facing everyone, but there is there is consolidation that's been happening. It's coming, particularly among traditional age students that the nonprofits tend to serve um, disproportionately. And there is a focus on the bottom line, but at the same time, there's also a, a kind of a an institutional denial in some cases of of the reality of their situations that unfortunately, you know, I, I just see, and this is something I've written about, I see closures that don't need to happen, but they they end up happening because sometimes those types of institutions delay or they do engage in some wishful thinking um, sometimes that it causes them to get into trouble. Your point, and I do see it myself, there is a desire to, you know, obviously have, you know, revenues exceed expenses at those institutions the same way there is at a, at a for-profit school. There has been an uptick in closures among nonprofit institutions. You see it in the morning newsletters that come out uh, inside higher ed and the Chronicle and others. And I think that people have a focus on for-profit closures uh, without thinking about how important it is to also consider closures that happen in other sectors. What, what, what are your thoughts about what the trend looks like in the future? There are challenges all over the place in higher education, right? So among traditional age students, you have basically a contraction of just the, the raw numbers of traditional age students that are coming out of high school. You also have the, the reality that the demographic mix of those students is changing such that there are fewer and fewer full pay affluent students and more and more students in the mix um, for a variety of reasons are more challenged financially. And so they're not able to pay the same amount. So there's a challenge to the revenue base in that traditional 18 to 22 year old population. And what you want to see ideally is some kind of an orderly consolidation. But like I said, traditional institutions, especially if they're older and have been around for a long time, especially as, as I find sometimes nonprofit institutions tend to have very large boards. I, I think it's at some point that the smaller the school, the bigger the board seems to be the operative case. And it becomes very, very difficult for them to take the steps that are necessary to get in front of what is just a fundamental change in the market. Like I said, I, I think in, in some cases, you just see these terrible closures that really didn't need to happen. But because those institutions tend to wait too long, they wait until the liabilities are too great and they are not able to, by the time they get ready to merge with another institution, it's too late and their liabilities are too great for another institution to take on. I think in general, the issue, I am very sympathetic to the challenges around closures in general. And, you know, what you see 
criticized among the the career college sector, among the profit-making, privately-owned schools is that there have been cases where they've closed too abruptly. This is a hard thing, no matter what you're doing, uh, when students are involved, you know, sort of g- getting getting real with the with what's happening in your business early enough so that you can affect a a transition that you know is optimal from the perspective of students and pr- perspective of the government. I mean, this is incredibly difficult. It's the work that we try to do to help schools, but like I said, you can lead a horse to water, right? It, it it's it's a very hard conversation to have with schools that are in decline. And, you know, this is what I used to do as an equity analyst, right? I mean, what equity analysts do on Wall Street is that they make projections uh, about where the revenues are going in the future. And we don't, in the regulatory apparatus, there's no way for, not not that I necessarily would trust the government to do this, but there's no way, there's no forward-looking measures in any of this, right? Everything is backward-looking. And so as a result of that, you know, there's no formal way to sort of see the, the writing on the wall early enough to affect, you know, some kind of regulatory intervention, it really just, it's incumbent on the boards to to deal with the reality and see when institutions are running into trouble to recognize that early enough so that they have options. But it's a tough circumstance. It's a, it's a market-driven circumstance and may not always be true, but it is, it is sort of what the, you know, the next few years look like for all kinds of schools. You've written and commented a lot about the administration's focus on debt forgiveness and income-driven repayment, the the loan forgiveness that was struck down by the Supreme Court. And a lot of political capital and time has been put forward by this administration in pursuing those policies. But that's all driven by the fact that the increase in the cost of higher education is exponential over the past many years. As an analyst who studies this and, and, and works every day thinking about this, just at the heart of it, why does college cost so much? That's a question that lots of, of people that are far smarter than me haven't been able to precisely put their finger on. There are a number of factors at work there. I think certainly the role that government lending plays, and it, it's a complicated role, and there's been studies that have shown both the direct impact and then no impact, and it can vary. But I think at some level, when you subsidize something, you're going to create some padding for institutions to raise their prices. So that's one of the conditions. It's certainly the case that there's been administrative bloat. This is a difference between a nonprofit institution and a for-profit institution. You don't have that same rigor necessarily. You've had the ability to raise prices. We've seen that the, the creation of both the the grad plus program at the graduate level and the parent plus program at the undergraduate level has meant that there has effectively been no limit at all on uh, the ability to raise prices, right? So families and graduate students have gone into tremendous debt to fund degree programs um, with really no accountability in that area at all. It's probably more complicated than we have time to, to talk about uh, today, but it's an issue. I'm not sure there's a simple solution to it. But the first step is just recognizing that it's a that it's a concern. And and from my perspective, simply making it easier for loans that students have taken out to be erased doesn't really get at that cost question at all. It may make life easier for those students that have found themselves in tremendous debt. It makes life easier for the institutions 
who get to kind of sidestep the uncomfortable questions that come from having graduate populations that have enormous amounts of debt, but it doesn't do anything to get at how do we bring the cost down so that, you know, that this kind of funding isn't required to fund education going forward. That's exactly where I was going to go with that is, is the inequity that exists and the difference in the thought process of canceling debt and the high cost of education. You don't solve the first problem by dealing with the second problem. And when you have an institution, for example, a public institution that derives huge funding sources from taxpayers, state subsidies, compared to a nonprofit institution, whether it be a private nonprofit or, or even a for-profit institution, what, what role do you think the taxpayer subsidy and the state subsidies that flow to public universities and colleges, uh, what role does that play in the problem? That's a concern as well. These are challenges. You, you see the same debates in healthcare and in other areas where you have this combination of public and private dollars at work in the same equation. And you can point to state subsidized programs that have been enormously successful, right? Like I, I think if you look at the University of California from its get-go, it's hard to make the argument that the state of California funding the University of California was not an overall positive for the state, for the students, et cetera. And yet, you know, the, lately, the performance of that system has begun to, to suffer, right? There's, there's something that's gone on there where it's, it's not working the way that it used to. I find this the case all, all the time in the, the community college system, which is, you know, you're, you're not allowed to criticize community colleges at all ever without fire raining down on you. But the reality is, you know, and especially because I live in California and I see this example in California, California has made the community college system so inexpensive through their subsidies, you know, all, all with good intent, but it, it diminishes the value in the minds of the students. And so you have students that spend some time there and don't complete. You have the proliferation of programs that are, you know, sort of, of, of dubious merit and quality you have lots and lots of institutions that just don't accomplish what they were designed to accomplish. And, and that's not to take away from, you know, there, everybody will point you to very excellent community colleges and there, there, there are some that perform really well. But overall, you know, my feeling there is that you, you just have so little accountability. You have mission creep. You have really a student population that is, is ambivalent at best about what they're there to do. It's an example where the direct subsidy doesn't necessarily result in, in the outcome that you want. The way we fund higher education in the U.S. is so complicated. And, and so the subsidies and the costs and, you know, they're so intertwined with each other, sort of unraveling it cleanly is is extremely challenging proposition. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that, you know, there, there's not a simple fix, right? If you, if you talk to the hardcore libertarians, they just want to eliminate all student loans entirely, right? But, you know, that that to me just seems enormously impractical. I can't see that happening tomorrow without enormous dislocations and problems taking place. So I, I don't pretend to have the, the clear solution to it. I, I just try to fight the good fight at the margins on some of this stuff. And lastly, what I wanted to ask you was about online program management and uh, the, the administration made a what I think most people would agree a huge misstep in the way they 
put forward the guidance on third-party servicers more generally. And critics of the for-profit sector are more critics of for-profit involvement in higher education in any way, more so even than just for-profit schools in and of themselves. And, uh, you know, OPMs and, and the third-party services are a part of that. How much do you think those types of uh, management firms and, and uh, you know, what, what their involvement is in higher education plays into the critic of for-profit education? I think the critics of the for-profit sector moved on to OPMs because they were the next new thing and they were seeing growth and expansion at a time when for-profit colleges were seeing some contraction. And so that it was a less uh, amusing target and they, they moved on to OPMs. I think their criticism of OPMs don't really stand up at all. You know, they, they want to put the OPM servicers in the same box that they place the for-profit colleges, but they don't really fit there nearly as well for a whole variety of reasons. One that you mentioned before, which is that there's this presumption that the universities themselves that partner with these groups are sort of unsophisticated rubes that are getting taken advantage of by the sophisticated for-profit companies. I don't think anything could be further from the truth. The, these institutions that are, that are successfully partnering with OPMs are enormously sophisticated. They're absolutely calling the shots in, these, in this contracting, and they are responsible for the enrollment decisions, good or bad, right? I think there's been some criticism of USC growing its social work program too large for the market, for the students to really benefit in the market for that program, given what the salaries look like there. That was completely a USC decision. And, you know, the, the worst you could say about their partner, or um, that case was to you, is that they maybe should have known better and walked away. But I think that's a that's a tough line. So the critics want to sort of make the the for-profit companies out to be the bad guys. And, and that's not really how this is operating here, nor is it the case that that somehow the fact that the for-profit OPMs are are sharing revenue with these institutions means that they're incented to enroll students irresponsibly because it's really the institutions that are making the enrollment decisions there. And fundamentally, what the reason that that revenue sharing model, which is the the core of what the the critics have attacked and what I think the regulations are attempting to put an end to is uh, it's basically a, a, a low risk financing for the institutions, right? They they want that. And so what I continually hear is that even though there's all this noise made about how bad revenue sharing is, and even though all these new regulations are have been proposed, the institutions themselves, they still want the revenue share model because in that revenue share model, the for-profit partner carries all of the upfront risk associated with building the program, launching the program, and running the risk that there may not be the kinds of students uh, out in the market that they're anticipating for those programs. And, and, you know, the institutions are, you know, especially nonprofit institutions are very averse to risk. And so that's part of why this model has worked. And really no one wants it to go away except the people standing on the outside, just sort of objecting to the fact that there are large companies growing in the education services space. Our guest today has been Trace Erden. He is a managing director at Titan Partners. Trace, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Career Education Report. 
Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, visit our website at career.org and follow us on Twitter at CQED. That's at C-E-C-U-E-D. Thank you for listening. Topic up.